0: This is Locking Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Mauerbytes Labs, we analyzed a malicious website posing as a legitimate database for favicons, which are the small logo-type images seen in browser tabs. When separate websites unwittingly pulled a specific image from that database, they would potentially become vulnerable to a credit card skimmer. It's an admittedly clever scheme, and I have to give credit. It sucks. We also reported on Singapore's efforts to add a right to data portability and a data breach notification requirement to its national data protection law. Similar to government efforts around the world, Singapore's updates could better align its regulations with the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, the heavyweight champion of data privacy laws today. The featherweight in this category? Probably the U.S. One of our national data privacy laws is about video rental records. Hey, don't make fun. My blockbuster history is embarrassing. We also informed readers about cloud-delivered security, an advancement in cloud technology that moves beyond storing your assets in the cloud to delivering security through the cloud. Cloud-delivered security can provide better insight into mobile users and application usage, centralized management, and bolster detections against malware and attempted breaches. What can't the cloud do at this point? Beam up my consciousness, please. My body is ready to leave this world. Finally, our threat intelligence team uncovered a new Remote Access Trojan variant that we believe is associated with a North Korean threat group. The new variant which can allow for command execution, file management, traffic proxying, and worm scanning, is designed specifically for Mac operating systems. Remember last month when people said that creativity and ingenuity flourish during times of difficulty? Oh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the plague. Newton theorized that gravity extended far beyond our reach during the plague. Possible North Korean threat actors developed a Mac variant for a remote-access Trojan? This isn't what we wanted. In cybersecurity news across the world, Vice reported that a hacker bribed a support contractor working on the video game Roblox to gain access to the personal information of more than 100 million users. The hacker told Vice, quote, I did this only to prove a point to them. Which... Duh? You proved bribery works? We know that. Roblox knows that. The countless children who play Roblox know that. The Australian government's Sports Integrity Agency, which is a thing, will work closely with the esports industry to root out betting-related corruption in online gaming. Investigators for the agency's intelligence unit, again, a thing, charged five men for allegedly match-fixing an online tournament of the video game Counter-Strike Global Offensive. If you ever told your kids they'd never make money playing video games, well, I bet you feel silly now, because there is tons of money in crime. The Register warned readers about the new contact tracing app developed by the UK's National Health Service to track the spread of coronavirus. By sidestepping the decentralized approach of Apple and Google, the UK app may fail to communicate between separate devices, drain batteries faster, and also just possibly could be a little illegal. Great start. HelpNet Security reported on a new phishing campaign in which hackers are using fake Microsoft Teams emails to trick users into giving up their login credentials. Look, this isn't fair. My only worry about video conferencing should be whether my coworkers think I'm a slob or whether they know I'm a slob. And last up, university researchers in Israel proved that hackers could access information on air gapped computers, which are machines isolated on local networks and with no internet access. The novel attack relies on special malware that converts a computer's power supply unit into a speaker of sorts sending out inaudible sound waves, which are then translated into text on a separate device. If it sounds crazy, it absolutely is, and I am absolutely here for it. Our main story today concerns facial recognition technology. Increasingly popular for both consumer goods and law enforcement, this not-so-recent technological development is facing severe pushback, with at least 40 groups demanding a moratorium in the United States. But concerns of privacy and inaccuracy have failed to stop development. Facial recognition technology is in our phones, our smart doorbells, even on our college campuses. This year, both the New York Times and BuzzFeed News reported on one company's boastful claims about its own facial recognition technology, which relies on a database of more than 3 billion images scraped from public websites. The company, Clearview AI, has repeatedly pitched police departments in the U.S., claiming that its technology helped find a terrorist suspect, but it's unclear if that's true. Meanwhile, as U.S. police departments consider adopting facial recognition technology for their own efforts, at least one state, California, has passed a ban on implementing facial recognition technology into police body cameras. On today's show, we are discussing a technology with broad applications, from identifying, or also likely, Misidentifying a criminal suspect, to suggesting friends to tag in Facebook photos, to recognizing your UPS delivery person, to help us better understand facial recognition technology, its history, and any risks it may bring, we're talking today to Chris Boyd, lead malware intelligence analyst for Malwarebytes. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's get right into it. When I think about it, you know, we the public we seem to have this idea that facial recognition technology is new that it's just come about in the past five or even 10 years. But that's not true, is it? Can you tell us about how far the state's back?
1: Yeah, I mean, originally it started off as a, an interesting exercise, really, just a way to attack the challenge of trying to identify faces from different angles with the you know, the comparatively quite limited technology that was available. So this is back in the, the mid 60s, I think. A number of researchers and scientists like Helen Chan-Wolf and uh, Woodrow Bledsoe, they used to use these things called Rand tablets. Mm-hmm. The name's slightly deceptive. You know, we, <laughs> we we say tablet, we think of you know the kind of tablets we have now. These things yeah. were sort of big, clunky screens mm-hmm. attached to a chain and a pen. These two try and ignore the the variance caused by different angles of a a headshot. So they'd map. I think it was fifteen, twenty different distances based on the specific facial coordinates of somebody's head. They wow. give each of those images a name. Essentially, they would try and scrub out the effect that changing the angle of these headshots would have to be able to whittle down exactly who this person was. So, you know, that was back in the 60s. This technology progressed over time up to, you know, the 90s. You know, we, we hit the 90s and suddenly this technology. It's still quite crude, but it's in airports, it's in banks, it's in other places. And they're still trying to remove errors caused by obstructions because they never really managed to get past particularly the problem of somebody doing something as nefarious as maybe having a moustache or, or <laughs> wearing a hat, uh, those evil hat-wearing people, you know. Um, so, so they really upped their game and tried to come up with ways that this technology could ignore things like hats and evil moustaches to the extent where it took, I think, roughly 13 to 15 seconds to be able to identify somebody accurately. But this is still a problem now, you know. I know we, we'll talk about, is it Clearview AI? Yeah. We'll talk about them a little bit later, but even there, they, they still have problems now with this wall that this technology has run into, essentially, where obstructions on somebody's face still cause major headaches for this technology. So that's yeah. generally where this this tech has come from. And now it's, you know, as we'll see, it's it's pretty much everywhere.
0: I definitely saw something online recently about, I don't know what facial recognition technology like, company it was, but it was essentially like a brochure. And I believe it was given to a law enforcement department. There was like a pros and cons list, like really breaking it down as simple as, as it possibly could. And like one of the things that was listed as like, oh, it, it doesn't work if this is in the photo. And like the bullet point was just masks, right? Like <laughs> if someone's wearing a mask, I'm sorry police department we're just we can't do it yet you know it's 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 too tough to figure out so like you said you know if this has been dating back several decades why is it that we're only really kind of truly worrying about this now what has recently happened to sort of wake us up to these risks
1: i think technology has kind of caught up with Surveillance systems in, in terms of the technology that we use on a day-to-day basis, the technology in our homes, in our workplaces. So, you know, the rise of the Internet of Things in the home is all pervasive. And the fact that, you know, you know you'll, you'll get these devices in your home and they now plug into several aspects of facial recognition systems, you know, like, like home doorbell systems wired up to your, your home hub, things like that. The fact that we use biometrics a lot more in workspaces. So, you know, you've got your biometric ID cards for security, things like that.
0: Yeah, we've seen it, like you said, it's, it's in airports, it's in banks. I saw a recent report that said it came out that it's being potentially rolled out on college campuses. It's in Stanford University, but only for like ordering food. And because of its prevalence, we've also seen a much, much more kind of potentially invasive rollout that's happening in London that I recently read about. What's going on over there in London? And is it the first major metropolitan city to take on this action?
1: It's a bit of a strange one, really, because the UK has a a very odd relationship with biometrics because it's not always facial recognition it usually comes hand in hand with several other developments. So it might be, for example, in schools, there was a big thing in the UK a few years ago where parents were finding out that their kids were being, for example, fingerprinted. Their fingerprints were being used to ID whether they were allowed to have certain school meals or not, whether they had to pay for certain meals or not a lot of this was happening occasionally without their permission, without their knowledge, without idea you know where mm. this data was being stored, how long for, who was storing it. And you find that with, with everything uh, in the UK, there tends mm. to be some strange biometric activity taking place. So for example, visa holders will have these ID cards called biometric residence permits. There is no national ID card in the UK. This has been something that's come around Every so often at election time, but it is generally yeah. box office poison, if you like. Nobody wants <laughs> a national ID card. Nobody will vote for a, a party that, that tries to push such a thing. There have been various tries to have these in the past. And they have, all without exception, collapsed and burned. Nobody wanted it. So you, you have this two-tier system where certain groups of people in the UK are forced to have these, these biometric cards. Other people don't have to have them. So these cards contain all sorts of very personal information on them. But then, even though the UK has signed up to uh, GDPR practices, you're supposed to be able to access your data, as is your right under GDPR. But the UK Data Protection Act actually has an exemption that prevents immigrants with visas being able to access their data if you run into a problem with your visa, if you have to contest a deportation or a removal, you can't access the data that your own case history has oh when God. challenging what you feel to be a bad data decision. So that's just one. I realize I've kind of gone off topic, but I'm now about to bring <laughs> it back very much <laughs> on topic because that's just a small example of how we, we insist on using biometrics in some ways, but right. also often to your, your own detriment. Yeah. And in the same way, there have been multiple rollouts of CCTV, you know, facial recognition systems by law enforcement in the UK. Without exception, again, they've all generally been disasters. So in London, we have different... This may be similar to how you do it in the US, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have different regional police forces. They all do their own thing. They all will use or trial different types of technologies. So for Mm -hmm. example... In London specifically, they they tried a rollout of facial recognition tech at the twenty eighteen Notting Hill Festival, which is a huge, huge, you know, yearly event that takes place. They found I think it was a sort of privacy group that did a a freedom of information request, I think off the top of my head, I'm a bit rusty here. There Mm. was a ninety eight percent error rate. With regards to the, the trial of this technology, which is you know, absolutely terrible, South Wales Police, which is a different regional police authority, they used it for something. I can't remember what it was, but they had a 91% error rate. And on top of this, you would often find over X amount of thousand people had their biometric photos taken and stored without even knowing they were taken and stored. Then mm-hmm. you've got cases where people would see these police vans doing their you know, facial recognition thing. They would generally have a very small notification of, hey, you know, smile, you're on camera, uh, we're doing <laughs> this thing. Uh, but when somebody objected to this, the police basically arrested this guy because he objected to him being recorded and used yeah. in this way, which is absolutely ridiculous. That's insane. When you think about it. And the way yeah. that we, we match these images, again, this may be similar to how it's done in the US and other places, but we have all of these images, millions and millions of images on file from people who've been taken into custody. So, you know, it might be faces, it might be noticeable, tattoos, just, you know, just distinctive things used by mm, like yep. a suspect. But a 2012 High Court ruling stated that indefinite retention of innocent people's custody photographs was unlawful. So, you know, these things have to be removed from this massive database. But at last count, somebody estimated that we had something like 21 million images. So, you know, who, is, who on <laughs> earth is responsible for sitting right. down and thinking, right, I'm going to go through, you know, my, <laughs> my allotted quota of three million images for today. Uh, yeah. I will remove all the the images that should. It's never going to happen. Let's face no. it, it is okay. never going to happen. So you've got that as well. You've got all these innocent people bundled into these databases, if you like, that are being used for this this facial recognition tech, depending on which regional organization is doing it, mm-hmm. who's using you know, which technology. So, for example, this new rollout that's taken mm-hmm. place, despite MPs and pressure organizations and privacy groups and just the basic mm-hmm. numbers saying all of these tests are terrible, please stop. Somebody took one of the, these police organizations to court or, or said, you know, this is, this is unlawful, this shouldn't be happening. The high court, unfortunately, ruled that it wasn't actually illegal bizarrely, you have this current situation where one of the justifications the police organization at the moment is using to roll this tech out again. They're pointing to this decision which went in their favor and saying, well, you know, the high court said this wasn't illegal, so what's mm-hmm. the problem? This new org that they're using, I can't remember their name, but I believe they're using a different facial recognition system from some other supplier. They've claimed that their success rate is 70%. But well, I believe someone estimated that in a city of eight million people, like London, that's right. still roughly eighty thousand people that could be at risk from, you know, an incorrect arrest, uh, yeah. incorrect yeah. flagging, and of course, then you have to think back to all those people who have all of their information in these databases that shouldn't be there. So it's you know, it's it's a perfect combination of factors which will result in a in a gigantic fail pile of <laughs> incorrect. Arrests, uh, incorrect detentions, people being pulled up that shouldn't be pulled up.
0: Is the London Police Department just doing this for the purported reason of like safety? Is that what it is? It's just like this is gonna help stop crime, even having heard just such dismal numbers. Like I'm just kind of trying to wonder, like, if we have this information that's out there, if we know that it doesn't work, what is yeah. the purpose of it?
1: Everything ultimately comes back to the home office, who, you know, are also responsible for the the wonderful two-tier system of here's a biometric ID card, but no, we won't let you see what data you have if there's a problem. So they're also responsible for the police, essentially. And they their standard line is that there is public support for the use of this facial recognition technology to combat, you know, all the usual suspects, the terrorism and other crimes. But you know, they'll say there'll be an open debate on the use of this technology. I think I wrote on the blog about this at the time what form this debate takes remains to be seen. Obviously, at the moment, it's a very invisible one, <laughs> considering we've got this, this all-new rollout. You know, you know the, the message from the top down is it's for our own good. It will keep us safe, but with very little information about what people are supposed to do to keep themselves safe from this technology, and especially in the result of a, an incorrect flagging.
0: From everything you were talking about, you know, the way that independent police departments sort of seem to do their own thing, it is very much tracks with what's happening in the U.S., and it is very much like, you know, if a police department wants to purchase facial recognition technology, if they want to do business with like a vendor of that, it appears they have the complete like ability to do that. And we've also seen some cities and states ban it. Like I said, at the top of the show, California is banning the use of facial recognition technology in police body cameras. And then I think one of the biggest police body camera makers in the U.S., I think their name's Axon. They came out and said that they're not going to implement facial recognition technology in their body cameras, which was like a pretty big thing. It surprised me. I didn't, I didn't assume that that would happen. And then we've also heard of other reports. I believe Microsoft reportedly refused to sell facial recognition technology to law enforcement. So there's a couple of companies that are like not doing it. But as we said again, earlier in the show, there are some that are actively pitching. And this is where we get to a company like Clearview AI, right, this one that was reported on recently by the Times, by the New York Times, to have a database of more than 3 billion images that are just kind of scraped from public websites like Facebook and LinkedIn and going directly to police departments and saying, you know, we caught a bad guy in three minutes. We caught a terrorist in this much time. And it seems the reporting is showing that we're not even certain if that's true. And it also gets to the point of like, we don't know what their success rate is. And when I wanted to zoom out of like, the facial recognition program in London and some of the error rates that you were talking about—you know—in South Wales there was that ninety-one percent error rate. The Notting Hill Festival at ninety-eight percent error rate. It appears these problems are like everywhere with every like facial recognition technology. Am I getting that right? Like, are these problems kind of universal?
1: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the the interesting thing about this Clearview thing is that when the stories first broke. There were a lot of people online that thought, "Oh no, you know this this will grab an image of me and tell, you know, random strangers where I live, which street I live on, this, that, and the other." Which sounds very scary, but it's a bit over the top. From what I've read about this, from what I've seen of this, you know, it's not something you would find in a Jason Bourne movie. It's essentially <laughs> this thing grabs a bunch of photos from places people have voluntarily plonked online, and yeah. then if somebody gets into a a, a car fender bender accident. You know, it will have a dig around in its database and it will get lucky essentially if it matches the face to a YouTube video where somebody happened to name the person in the comments, you know, oh, I know this guy, it's Steve from accounts. Then they have, after all of that, a name, which isn't really that dissimilar to what, you know, somebody working in security or OPSEC would do. It just takes an awful lot longer to go digging for that needle in a haystack. Ultimately, it's still reliant on either the person attached to the image it pulls out Having voluntarily said my name is this, I live here. This is my street, and hey, here's my phone number for no discernible reason, <laughs> or somebody popping up in a reply section saying I know that guy. This is this person. He lives here. It's interesting, but it's not, I don't know. Is it really that different from something like TinEye or you know a vaguely clever Google reverse image search? I've no doubt about you know the the error rates or something interesting to look into, and without some sort of independent audit analysis of how accurate these things are that they claim to be. I'm a bit suspicious, but this is a problem everywhere. You've got more and more internet of things, technology being used in things like apartments. So, you know, people who live in, who rent an apartment block suddenly find that all of the the mechanical locks and bolts and things are being removed and replaced with hotel style key cards or fingerprint readers, or there's a very well known security analyst researcher who who blogged about this at length when they found out the you know that was essentially happening where they lived and they didn't want to live there anymore uh you Mm. know where was the data going who was retaining it who was looking after it and then you come across all these other issues like well you know if there's a if there's a fire will the system go down will i will i be trapped in my apartment will i be able to get out Could a random person you know fool the system somehow and break into my apartment so you see this not just on a on a you know places like San Francisco say, no, we don't want this anymore. Or, you know, Amazon employees saying we don't want this being used for businesses and law enforcement. It's right down to protest groups now that exist because they don't want to see this technology jammed into apartments. They don't want to see biometrics used in dwelling units, other purposes, homes. They don't want to be involved in any of this that's happening in New York at the moment, where they're, they're basically objecting to this technology. So it's, it's at the state level, it's at the national level, it's at the regional level, it's everywhere. People do not want this technology forced upon them. They may be willing to use it voluntarily, depending on how comfortable they are with it. You know, in terms of, hey, you're having this now. It's a case of no. They, they most certainly do not, you know.
0: Talking about the different protest groups, last year, we have a, we have a group here in the US, Fight for the Future. From what I understand, they used Amazon's facial recognition technology, which is called recognition, but spelled with a K. And they walked through the halls of Congress. They walked through the halls of U.S. House of Representatives, I believe, and maybe also the, the Senate, just like their, essentially their office buildings, with cameras, uh, recording images. And then they applied Amazon's recognition software to that to see if they found any matches with alleged criminals. And they did, right? And it, it wasn't that, you know, Congressman X from Ohio had been booked before. It wasn't that at all. It's that these are what false positives look like. This is what they look like. It's, it's actual individuals, real people being misidentified for things they never did. And sure, right? Like these individuals have the power of representation and they have the power of lawyers and they're congressmen and women. This was a showcase. This was a stunt. But for a lot of people, this that's not a stunt, right? And for a lot of folks, if the first finger that can be pointed is one that is wrong, it's like, what what an extremely dangerous way to identify people. The consequences are just way too large. And it kind of gets to what I think is more important here, which is with so many errors, with so much like fault and so many privacy implications, what if these companies do, you know, quote, unquote, get it right? You know, what if they do get it to 100% accurate facial recognition technology? Is that good? Like, is that a good thing for us? So what if they get it?
1: I mean, in, in some ways, it's bad if it's wrong with lots of errors all over the place. And mm-hmm. you could argue it's even worse if they actually do get it right. You know, Because <laughs> right. it's not just this technology operating in isolation. There are all sorts mm-hmm. of really strange ways that people are using This technology. So, you know, Mm. a couple of years ago in Hong Kong, I believe they did something along these lines, where they they attempted to use DNA from discarded uh, litter to try and piece together an accurate representation of the person's face. So, so, you know, if you discarded a sweet wrapper on the floor, they would put these things on billboards and try and, you know, name and shame. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, there's some debate over that one with regard how accurate it was or whether it was just a sort of marketing stunt. But there is a history, weirdly, of this this kind of thing over there. So there was something a couple of years ago with regards dispensing toilet paper. So like people would take lots and lots of toilet roll from the dispensers, and they attempted to name and shame people doing oh, okay. that. And not long ago, actually, just CCTV cameras in one particular city in China, government officials actually had to apologize because they hmm. started deciding that people going to the shops in their pajamas was quote-unquote uncivilized behavior. So the next wow. minute, they were taking these incredibly accurate photographs from CCTV, you know, sticking them online alongside the person's name, ID card, and other information. And I believe there were a couple of instances where they asked the public to submit their own photos of uncivilized behavior, and they would pay <laughs> them for successful hip-offs. <laughs> so, you know, this, these are very strange things to do, and this is this yeah. is in a place where you know, in in the mainland China where they've already got something like 180 million uh, CCTV cameras, Uh, there's plans to add an additional 400, 500 odd between 2018 and 2021. So I guess that is ongoing now. Everybody's got, you know, their ID cards over there. I think it's 190 million ID cards that they've got. They're intending to have facial recognition accuracy tied to their CCTV cameras with an accuracy rate of about 90%. Now, again, as we've seen, the accuracy rate on these things is is pretty bad in most places. These things have been trialed so far, but in somewhere like China, where they've got this massive surveillance infrastructure available already, these very very accurate, clear quality cameras all over the place. You know, it's not unusual to see a a, a street sign or a, or a location there where there will be you know half a dozen cameras just on this one post, and then it's being tied into this name and shame system that certain cities are doing. And then you find out that they're taking things further and tying things like your online behavior into a kind of credit score that is then used mm-hmm. to you know, provide or deny essential services and systems, throw all these things into the mix. And it's an interesting and vaguely terrifying glimpse into where these, these technologies can actually end up. There's all these these ethical questions wrapped into this technology. It's not just a case of so many thousand people were, were ID'd incorrectly. It goes much further than that. And it also plays into the bias that these systems often have built into them. And also the way sometimes the technology is used that seems... Very, very uh, odd with how they would intend them to be used. So I don't know if you're aware back in 2010, the Connect, the Xbox Connect system. I'm
0: aware of that failure, yes. <laughs>
1: yeah, it, it, it didn't do so well. Uh, but when, when they first rolled this out, it had multiple types of tracking systems mm. built into it. So it had a skeletal tracking system for body yep. movement, which worked perfectly. But for uh. faces, it was all over the news that people claimed the, the devices were, were essentially racist because if you had darker skin tones, it wasn't working for lots of people. It wouldn't recognize them. And it took a long time to figure out that the reason these things weren't working correctly was because unlike the, the skeletal tracking system, for faces, it used a light sensor instead of, I believe, it used infrared for the body. It didn't detect any faces correctly in a darker environment. Most people don't play you know, with connect devices in a, in a very brightly lit you know mm-hmm. supermarkets right. essentially <laughs> they, they they play it in the evening at home with the lights dimmed. so they yeah. found uh, where, where you you put this thing into a, a typical home situation it simply couldn't cope properly because of the way this thing had been put together and disregarding the fact that people may well play these these types of technology with darker skin tones and there was right. another one you know this happened again i think in 2014 or 15 with soap dispensers, I believe it was. Yes. And I got, a guy uploaded lots of videos where it worked for his, his friend who was white and it wouldn't work for him. And they couldn't figure out why. And apparently it was because, again, this was a case where the, the infrared style sensor didn't work, unlike the Kinect skeletal yeah. tracking system, because uh, essentially it was relying on, on the hand to reflect the light back and activate the water to essentially complete uh-huh. the circuit. So. Yeah. If your skin was essentially too dark for this thing and it started to absorb the light rather than reflect it back, of course, it wouldn't trigger. You know, It's another example of the way these systems are all around us, even mm. if they don't necessarily, it's not necessarily related to uh, facial recognition. There are still all these various things that you have to think about to make sure that it works for everybody instead of just a few people. You can kind of think about how those two examples could track back to the way facial recognition systems will probably not work as well as they should do for many, many demographics across the UK and the US where, yeah. you know, again, there will, there will be people incorrectly flagged.
0: Yeah, I remember the Connect and the Soap Dispenser examples absolutely also showcased like pretty immediately to everyone like, oh, the development teams had not a single African-American or Latino or just an individual with dark skin, you know, to test this on and it also kind of revealed sort of the demographics of the people who build these things because surely if they were making it one assumes they would test it on themselves and it's like that problem would have been addressed if that kind of representation was there but it wasn't for something as simple as like soap and yeah you, like you said these are small things uh, imagine the outdo effect for things like facial recognition technology um,
1: oh absolutely
0: Chris Chris Thank you so much for being on the show. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Peter Arntz about web browser privacy, an important but less talked about aspect of data privacy that focuses not on the information we share with large platforms like Facebook and Twitter, but instead the information we inadvertently share when using web browsers.